Hello and welcome to the Football Outsiders Ask Me Anything podcast. I'm Mike Denier, filling in for Aaron Schatz, who is sleeping off, I think, a big long weekend in Las Vegas. I'm not sure what he's doing right now. But I'm here along with Brian Knowles and Scott Spratt from Football Outsiders. And we're going to be asking, answering your questions today, and as well as covering some of the big topics from the week in the NFL. And uh, we welcome everyone who's watching live, whether you're watching live on uh, Twitch or YouTube or uh, Twitter, Facebook. I'm not sure where you can watch things live. I know you can watch them in the little widget at Football Outsiders itself. You might be seeing us there. If that's the case, come join us. Ask us questions. Chit-chat with us. Makes the show great to have you guys involved. And whether you're watching live or you're watching later on on your favorite uh, podcast app or whatever, please like us, leave a five-star review. We'll, we'll mention your review on the air if you leave one. Um, and, and, and share. Share the opportunity to come out and hang out with us uh, all week, but especially on Wednesdays here at Football Outsiders. Just want to remind everybody before we get started, there is a limited time offer right now. Football Outsiders Plus, only 99 cents a week. 99 cents a week, so cheap that we can afford it. Even if we weren't given it because we're employees, we could afford it. And this is an opportunity to get all the DFS information, fantasy information, wagering information, all the splits, all the breakdowns, all the things we talk about all the time on Football Outsiders. They can be yours. They can help you make your decisions, how to set your lineup, how to how to put together your parlays for the week. Or if you're like us and you work in the industry, how to put say something a little more interesting uh, on your on your podcast or on your blog than, oh, he's a winner. We have the opportunity to give you that. So uh, let's get started with some surprise news. A surprise from the Jets, guys. Joe Flacco is starting at quarterback this week. In 2021? <laughs> In the year of our Lord, 2021. A team that two weeks ago declared that they had two starting quarterbacks in Zach Wilson in Mike and Mike White, who they could then trade to the world and, and bring the Jets' fortunes around. Joe Flacco will be starting this week. Um, I'll, start, I'll, I'll, I'll start with your, Scott. Your thoughts on this? I guess it's a little bit less surprising with, with Mike White. So it seemed like he had played well, but playing the Bengals and Colts, despite having overall good defenses, are dramatically better defending the run than the pass. So to me, when you face the Bills in the in like by far the number one DVOA pass defense, right. it's not surprising that things changed. You know, I'm not going to criticize the Jets for starting Flacco because like, what even is the the like the point or the the thing you can do for the team in this game? The whole idea is you're developing one of your quarterbacks for the future. It doesn't really even help you lose because you already think you have the quarterback of the future. It's not right. like there's a top draft you know prospect anyway. So like, honestly, what does it matter? It doesn't matter if they win this game or not, right? Right. Well, you're not going to criticize the Jets for starting Joe Flacco. Brian, can you criticize I'll criticize them for starting Joe Flacco, sure. Um, <laughs> Joe Flacco is not going to be part of the team going forward, you would hope. Uh, you know, the odds are that Mike Wilson is, uh, Mike White isn't either, but he's still an unknown. We know who Flacco is by now. We've seen him for years and years and years. He's good for one good game a year at this point in time. Maybe it'll be this one, but like, like I said, what does it matter if the Jets win or lose? If you the point for starting someone like Flacco at this point is, oh, we've got to try to get at least a little bit of uh, you know, the bridge between while we're waiting for our star quarterback to come back. What are the Jets bridging to? The Jets are bridging from nowhere to nowhere. <laughs> right. Now, of course, I'm I'm here in Joe Flacco's hometown uh, talking to everybody here. So, you know, uh, they were setting off fireworks this morning out of enthusiasm. That was actually a car backfiring out front of my house. That, that wasn't that level of excitement. But yeah, it, it's kind of a nothing burger on the one hand, because like you guys said, win or lose, it doesn't really matter. But on the other hand, it's kind of indicative of like the, the Jets-ness of the Jets that like it's such muddled thinking right now. It's like, hey, it's the middle of the season. Let's throw the 30-something year old out there. I mean, that I would argue that the mistake was starting Mike White last week, because if you're trying to maximize his trade potential, right, you, mm -hmm. you stop at 500 passing yards and four passing touchdowns. <laughs> you stop immediately like and then hold him and try to trade him in the offseason. Like at this point, yeah, it, it, White's value is already gone. So, yeah, it's it's over with. Yeah, and, I'm coming at this a bit from, from the loser league angle briefly here. Okay. Um, so I, I wrote about the Jets a lot this week because uh, both both Mike White and Zach Wilson have had four interception days. Yes. Uh, they are, the Jets are the 62nd team ever to have two different quarterbacks throw four interceptions in the same season. Are they going for three? I, mean, Joe, I think Flacco, is, from a losing perspective, is less likely to get you huge negative points because he's going to check down a billion times. He's going to get mm -hmm. you all those little tiny dink and dunk yardage. But, man, 
I'm my fingers crossed for the first ever team to have three different quarterbacks with four interception days. The it's, other 60 something uh, quarterbacks or teams, were they all from like 1965 and before? Uh, a bunch of them were from the 60s when you suddenly doubled the size of the league and you had the double the size of quarterbacks. Uh-huh. And a bunch of them come from the 80s when uh, passing rates went up faster than interception rates dropped. As mm-hmm. everyone was experimenting with the run and shoot and the spread and the West Coast offense, but only what we saw on TV. Uh, just uh, you have a, and you have a bunch of things like Don Strock and uh, um, uh, Woodley for the for the '81 Dolphins. Okay. Uh, you have one what the replacement teams had happened. The uh, Vikings had one of their replacement people. A lot of times in the '80s, and then nothing in the nothing '90s, and surprisingly nothing in the '70s. Whatever is what I thought, but yeah. I guess everyone was running so much you didn't have time to throw four interceptions. <laughs> right, and they keep the quarterback who threw four interceptions out in the '70s for the rest of the season. Like exactly their starter. You're talking about loser league value. I'm just going to ask Scott, the Jets in terms of. Is there any meat on the bone with the Jets fantasy-wise with this move or without this move? I mean, if Brian's right that, that Flacco's going to be able to check the ball down a ton, I guess Michael Carter might be an option for you in fantasy. Probably a player that's better in fantasy than he is in real life because every reception you get is worth a point in fantasy, but not probably worth a point in expected points added, right? So, uh, I mean, I, I think Carter's a good player, but it's a bad circumstance overall. But I, the more that he gets fed the rock, it's good. It's, it's probably bad for Elijah Moore, though. I mean, that's the player that we all want to have success in right. fantasy right now. Right. Uh, by the way, I'm circling back before we leave Flaccoville forever. I'm stuck in Flaccoville forever, folks, but you are not necessarily. <laughs> in the in the chat, LL Salerno asks, and I think we touched on this, but we never quite hammered it home. Does Flacco give, actually give him more chances to win than Mike White? I think Flacco is less likely to have a huge disaster of a game. He's not like he's not going to likely to have you know, the, the four, five, six turnovers kind of thing. Right. So if you think, oh well, the defense is going to be really good and they're going to play a tight like you know seven to three game, but but the defense hasn't been good. So I, I'd, I'd go with the I I would personally go with the higher variance and put one of the young guys in there rather than have Flacco. Okay. My response is it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> and, and to a degree, mine too. And what's interesting about this game is it's fa- it's uh, Dolphins versus Jets, which means we just got through the whole the negging of the shaming of Tua for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then we started doing the shaming of Jacoby Brissett, where he's running around the sidelines and he gets pointed to and waved away. So now we get two teams that are like going out of their way to sort of mess up their quarterback situation or just create controversy where none necessarily has to exist. Um, we're gonna shift gears now, and this is perfect because as Vanderpool in the chat. Leads us right into our next topic. Are we having a good omen about Cam Newton and his return? And it's kind of like Cam Week at, uh, at Football Outsiders, if not here on planet Earth. Um, but we're going to turn it over to uh, Cam Central hmm. uh, in Greater Carolina, Scott Spratt. Is this a good omen? Do you have a good feeling about this? I mean, I would say it's always Cam Week here in Charlotte, North Carolina. We were all extremely excited to have our quarterback back. Uh, I, I didn't want him gone in the first place. I've always loved him. Always thought he was a better quarterback than I think people expected based on the, the basic statistics. It's just a situation where it's it's really hard to evaluate Cam by traditional metrics and kind of judge whether he's a good or bad quarterback. Right. And kind of case in point to that point is, you know, post the Super Bowl run in 2015, he went from a 59% completion rate in 2017 to a 68% rate in 2018. You're like, what changed? What changed is he threw the ball at Christian McCaffrey at time. Like we, we think about passing yards, completion rates and stuff as a measure of how good a quarterback is, but right. so much of it is style. And a lot of Cam's success has always been about he converts third and shorts and plays near the goal line. And it's not because of his arm. And it's, it's just really hard to wrap your, your mind around what he does well. Uh, and, and that's why I'm, I'm optimistic that it can work well. But I'm judging a lot of that based on what I think is improved arm health from like three passes in the preseason. Right. Maybe I'm getting a little bit over my skis here. Right. And that's hard to judge because he, he was hot and cold in the preseason. We heard varying reports from him. And, and Brian, you wrote about Cam as well this week, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, like I think I said it last week on one of the podcasts, bringing Cam Newton is is, is – Bringing Cam Newton is the perfect Venn diagram between that makes a lot of sense and this is absolutely hilarious, which is where <laughs> I want teams to live most of the time. Right. Considering how much money the uh, the Panthers still have paid to Cam Newton's replacement and Cam Newton's replacement's replacement. Right. And bringing Newton back in, like, I love it. I, I uh, covered the, the Panthers for Bleach Report during that Super Bowl year, and so okay. I've, I've watched a lot of prime Newton and He's just amazing to watch when he's in, when he's in full health and full form. There is there's never been another one quite like him. He's 
when we talk about rushing quarterbacks and rushing value, we're often talking about scrambling and improvising. Newton is the best quarterback I've ever seen at designed runs. So, so those mm. third and short and stuff like that. And that gives the Panthers a, a fantastic weapon. And I'll tell you, as someone who's, who's watching the NFC wildcard race very closely, I am less confident now that the Panthers have Newton than I would have been if they had stuck with PJ Walker. And certainly if they had stuck with Sam Darnold, uh, we, we I'm excited to see what Newton has left because last year was not great. He started okay, then he got COVID and everything just kind of fell off of a cliff. Right. We don't really know what Cam we're getting, but it's certainly the Panthers are now more interesting now that we get to find that out. Yeah, and 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 you talked about the wild card race, and we're going to get to the 49ers in a minute here. But uh, I haven't checked it recently. It was plus 300 to make the playoffs for the Panthers. And that was, you know, yesterday. So that was not like, well, they don't know they've got Cam or Cam is starting or whatever. Um, interested? You find you say at plus three hundred. Is it something you would you would you would nibble at? Go ahead, it, Brian. It might still be a little rich for me, just considering just the, the chaos of the just right, right now. Uh, I think I, I would side more with someone like the Vikings at this point in time. But mm-hmm. I think that the uh, I, I think the Panthers' odds are only going to go, get better until we see what Cam can get here. So right. the trick is that the Panthers closed the season with two games against the Bucks, one in at the Saints and one at the Bills. So it's yes. like you would expect the team to go 0-4 in that stretch, given just the general talent levels. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I'll say about Cam, or at least the theory of Cam, is that his weirdness is really hard to prepare for, which means the Panthers, like, they upset teams that are on paper a lot better than them and then also lose to teams that are a lot worse than them because it just isn't your standard, like, line them up kind of, kind of a thing. So I, I think the fact that it's a long odds type of shot, I like that better than I would like them if they were a better team overall and then a favorite. Uh, it just seems to me they're, they're more likely to win games that they shouldn't. If it Cam might specifically address some of the, the weaknesses of the team, like the fact that they have injuries in a bad offensive line and an offensive line that's better in run blocking than pass protection, like Cam makes more sense for the team than Darnold does, even when the two players are at their best. Right. It's like the strangeness and charm. And it's like he makes them the anti-Vikings. Because, you know, the Vikings are going to flow along right here, and if the playoff flow goes below them, they're in, whereas the Panthers, yeah, it's a, it's a wild card. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, an, an, it's a variable you can't account for. I will say, by the way, the Vikings are plus 160, and I just checked the Panthers are still plus 300, and it's not an either-or. It is not an either-or in this situation because you have a Saints team right now. It looks like they could fall apart very quickly. They are just out of humans on their, on their roster, and there could be room for two kind of eh, – uh, playoff teams in the NFC. Yeah, it's true. The Vikings do have the tiebreaker over the Panthers too, because they beat them in overtime. That's right. That's right. Now, by the way, Hitchhiker's Pie was talking and and both of your comments about Cam rushing t- touchdowns. Cam stands miles above everyone else. Closest are Otto Graham and Steve Young from seventy years ago and thirty years ago. And that is that is mind boggling. Now it was a different game seventy years ago. And <laughs> Otto Graham, I think we see pictures of him from late in his career. Where you know he he looks like some kind of like linebacker running around out there, but you know in this era, I mean Michael Vick is not even close to that. Randall was not even close to that, uh, and and Lamar Jackson is still so far away from that. It's stunning that we're still that we're still in this place where Cam is head and shoulders above all those guys. It's actually getting more extreme. You're talking about looking like a linebacker out there in one yeah. of the handful of plays Newton was was on the field last week. He was matched up on a design run against Isaiah Simmons, who ostensibly right. is a linebacker for the Cardinals, and he's way, way bigger than him. And it's just like, I don't know how you're going to stop him one-on-one in a situation like that when everybody's playing like extra safeties on the field, essentially. Right. Absolutely. By the way, shout out from Hitchhiker's Pie to your cat, Brian. Yep. Love it. Second, second coolest cat. It's a, it's a Panthers tribute. I appreciate that, Brian. Many thoughts about Cam Newton, I'm sure. <laughs> Second coolest cat here, Rivers is McCown's cat, I think is number one most popular character on all of our podcasts, but Brian's cat is moving up the ranks. He's already more popular than me. Um, switching gears here, and then Todd Singer had a question directly for you, Brian, and let us into what we're going to talk about anyway. Brian Garoppolo had a nice stretch of three games. Has San Francisco been doing anything differently schematically on offense? I don't think they've been doing a ton different schematically. Uh, they have been beginning to get Brandon Ayuk in more, which has helped. Mm-hmm. And then against the Rams, they started doing a couple of different things by sticking Debo Samuel in the backfield uh, and giving him, I think he had six carries for something like like 60 yards. Uh, I think overall they haven't been doing much schematically. What has changed is uh, turnover luck. The, the, yes. the Niners have, have 
we're coming into the Rams. Niners were second worst in the league at my at the negative nine turnover differential. They have right. not been able to recover a fumble to save their life. Hmm. And it turns out if you don't turn the ball over, you can extend drives and then maybe score some points. Which it turns out to be that that was the missing key for the Niners all these weeks. It's actually getting into the end zone without giving the other team the ball. So I've never seen a first half like we saw against the Rams. The Niners had two drives, two of them. Each of them, uh, 15, 16 plays, ate up basically the entire first half. They were they scored the ten point five points per drive in the first half, which is a pretty good uh, <laughs> right, pretty good rate if you can keep that up. That's not possible, but they did it. Defensive turnovers. By the way, to your point. Opponents fumbled 17 times against the 49ers. They recovered three of them. Yeah. And football outsiders, when we talk about fumble luck, we're not talking about, what do you mean fumble luck? You guys peanut punch the ball. They they strip sack quarterbacks. That's all true. But the ball bounces back to the opponent. And that was happening consistently for the 49ers. So it's not like, you know, it was it's something that you can coach. It's just that the ball was not bouncing their way. And that led directly to, I think, a couple of their uh, losses in a couple of their closed games. Um, Scott, your thoughts, you have to have some fantasy thoughts too about, about what's been going on there. Yeah. I mean, I have a couple things. One, I'm just going to steal from Robert Mays of the athletic. Cause he was saying basically, you know, the in vogue defense right now is the too high safety look. And it's basically a defensive scheme that dares teams to run the ball. And like, they're like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, teams are going to get bored running the ball all day. Patrick Mahomes wants to chuck the ball deep. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, the 49ers would rather run the ball than do anything else. It's like the <laughs> most fun thing on earth to them. So like, obviously they're going to keep running and it works well with Debo Samuel, so Samuel, among all running backs and wide receivers combined, uh, he's fifth right now with 3.27 yards before contact per attempt. Huh. Like we, we talk a lot more about yards after contact, but right. with the 49ers, like it's a yak thing too. But I mean, they, they have all these incredibly speedy guys. You think of that from Raheem Mostert's days, you know, Tevin Coleman back in the day too. Um, I think right now, Eli Mitchell was a sub 4-4 speed 40 guy. And that's why probably why he's really been a big boost for the team. Uh, but Samuel was also like four, four, eight or so, I think. So like it really fits with the Scott, the style of the of the outside zone running scheme. Uh, and I just kind of love what they're doing with that. And I mean the offensive scheme and players really haven't been the problem for the 49ers this year. As you guys have mentioned, it's it's really more about you know the luck and things like turnovers, defensive issues, some injuries, maybe personnel decisions, but the offense is really working well. Over the last three weeks, Jimmy Garoppolo has the highest uh DVOA and most DYAR of any quarterback in the league. That is not all due to Garoppolo. That is due to Kyle Shanahan getting these speedy receivers up in open space. And right. Garoppolo is, is distributing the ball to them. And when, and when the Niners went to the Super Bowl in 2019, that's what he did. He was very good at running the game plan, distributing the ball to these receivers in open space and letting them take off. And that's been working for the last three weeks. And that's why the Niners have maybe st- uh, staunched the bleeding a little bit here. And Brian, I imagine it's no small thing that George Kittle's been back the last two weeks, right? Like, yeah. it seems to me that he and Juszczyk would be the two biggest cogs in the rushing game plan. Uh, and, like, Kittle has obviously produced as a receiver of late, but he has to help everybody else. Kittle, Juszczyk, and Trent Williams, yeah. If you have all those three guys barreling down the same direction. There was a play play last week where Kittle and Williams combined just to blow Von Miller out of the water as, as a, yeah. uh, I think it was Debo, ran right by them. Just, yeah, I mean, that's what the Niners want to do. They want to get physical. They want to get in the trenches. They want to run the same rushing plays over and over and over again until you stop them. And the Rams just could not stop them. What's what's the mood like among 49ers fans now? Well, as of last week, it was who's going to replace Kyle Shanahan when they inevitably fire him at the end yep. of the season. Yep. And now it's why hasn't Trey Lance been playing instead of, <laughs> instead of Jimmy Garoppolo, who is, again, leading the league in, in passing stats over the past three weeks. <laughs> I, I saw that on Pro Football Talk. And it's one thing for, you know, in the blogosphere for us to, you know, say Trey Lance's name a lot to try and get some engagement. Yeah. But that was an actual question Kyle Shanahan had to address his press conference, right? Absolutely. And look, oh look I get it. I've seen enough Jimmy Garoppolo for my lifetime. I'm good. I'm done. I'm, I'm ready to see. Garoppolo was not creating anything on offense. Garoppolo was just running the offense. And you would have to think that Lance could do that as well. Right. But you don't you don't start complaining about that after you have this huge win. Right. The time to complain about that was when they were losing. And then you're like, why, why don't you bring Lance in to bring a spark? Now that things are going well, I mean, I would love to see Lance too. I really would. But as, but as things are going well, you stick with what's working. I mean, if Jimmy Garoppolo is Alex Smith, and that means that, that Trey Lance must be Patrick Mahomes, right? I think oh, that's man. how analogies work. Right, right, right. Or at least Colin Kaepernick, if we're not going to memory wipe him. And Kaepernick did spend his entire rookie year as a wildcat guy. So he did not like, or, or a big chunk of it, I should say. So it's it's not like this was like a transition that's that's like, oh, just wipe the slate clean and go with the next guy. 
It's, it's a very different situation. And remember, Lance did not play at all on Twitter Friday except for that one showcase game. He's yeah. very young. He's coming from from FCS. Yes, it gives because he needs game time to uh, to to get better. He needs he needs to get some reps. Right. But as long as Donner's at least in the wild card race, you can't really justify sending a guy out there just 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 to get experience. Right. Now I'm surprised that he didn't get in like in the fourth quarter against the Rams or in some of these other big scores just to get some get his feet wet. Some that right. I think is perfectly fine to criticize Shanahan for. But uh, I mean, at this point, you got to keep going with the Garoppolo as long as the Niners are at least in. They're only a half game back of that of that wild card miss. Right. Do you have any faith in them to pull, pull through that uh, crew? Some. Some faith. <laughs> we, nobody has faith in any of those teams. I think yeah. that's what it boils down to. We don't have faith in the Panthers. We have faith in the Vikings to tootle around and get there at, at, at eight and nine. That's Someone one say I have too much faith in the Panthers. <laughs> that is one yes, thing sir. that I do have. They still play the Vikings and the Falcons. So they have they play two of these teams in the mess. So they'll be able to con- right. to at least somewhat uh, control their own path to the wild card. If they can win those kind of games, they, they clear out the path a little bit. By the way, Al Salerno in the chat talks about those fast drives in a prime time game. Nothing I like better than like a 14 play, 11 minute, all running drive in a night game. They get closer, get closer to the fourth quarter, get that scoring, get that final in, and we could all go to go to sleep. Um, and Al Salerno also asks, why do you think the Rams are yeah. 0 and 5 against the 49ers? I'll, I'll start. I'll start that over to you, Brian. Yeah, the Rams are Rams are 0-5 against Shanahan. What the Rams want to do is they want to rush the passer, and they want to get, have Jalen Ramsey standing out there and intercept all the passes. They want you to get, like Scott said, they want you to get bored running and throw into their pass rush. Kyle Shanahan is not going to get bored running ever. They also have the players to take advantage of the Rams. Uh, linebackers aren't the best coverage in the world, and they've got Kittle, and they've got check and stuff like that, so they can take advantage of those kind of matchups. The, so the, but the Rams are built to defend are exactly the opposite of what the Niners want to do. And I think that's why Shanahan has such an advantage over McVay. Awesome. We've got, I got a couple of questions in the chat. We had a couple of questions that came on beforehand. I'm going to switch over to that. So a lot of people came on on Twitter. And remember, on Tuesday night on Wednesday, you can go on the Football Outsiders thread. You can go on my thread, Brian's thread, Scott's thread, even Aaron Schatz's thread. He might check on it as well and ask us anything, and we'll talk about it here. And hopefully you come and listen to us as well because this is where we're talking about it. A lot of coach, questions about coaches. We'll get to them in a minute. We're going to start out with Nathan Wingo, who asked, serious question, is any team even good anymore? Is that even something we want? Or do we want just a bunch of 10-win uh, teams with momentum heading into the playoffs? I love a good philosophical question like this, and I'm, I'm eager to hear your thoughts, guys. I mean, I don't think it's really that different than it was last season. So through 10 weeks last year, you had four teams with at least, you know, with at least seven wins or with only two losses or fewer. You had the the Saints at seven and two, the Packers at seven and two, but then you had the Chiefs at eight and one and Steelers at nine and oh. This year you have the Cowboys seven and two, Titans three and two or eight and two, mm-hmm. Packers eight and two, and Cardinals eight and two. Were we putting a little bit too much stock in that big zero or that big one in the loss column? Does that really change what you think about the quality of the teams at the top? For me, it doesn't. And meanwhile, last year, the Bucks, who ended up second in DVOA, they were seven and three and about to fall to seven and four. The Bills were seven and three. They finished fourth in DVOA. So to me, it's it's not different. I just think in football, given that you only have maybe 12 or so offensive drives a game, it's just so much easier for a worse team to upset a good team. And I just think that's something we consistently overrate. You always want the good team to win. It's just not going to happen. Also, from a philosophical sense, the, the question of like, do we do we want good teams or do we want teams with momentum and stuff? Which one is different situations every year? If if every year you had like, you know, who's going to go seventeen and zero this year and roll into the playoffs? That would get boring at a certain extent. And right. if every year is oh, everyone's ten and seven and no one has an advantage, that get boring. You want a bit of variety. You want every season to feel a little bit different. So I'm okay with a year or two where maybe there's not someone just steamrolling through the league. That's that's fun and interesting. Yeah, not every year needs to produce the 1985 Bears. It's okay if some years are more questionable. I love the experiential philosophical element of that because I'm kind of with with you, Brian. And like sometimes for me, it's also like, uh, what am I going to write about? <laughs> and when there's a new team every two weeks, so like, oh, that's a column opportunity and things like that. Whereas, okay, I, I was there in t- 2007 for the the, pa- the Patriots, and it's like, you know, by week 11, what are we talking about? The greatness of Tom Brady's greatness of Tom Brady. That can get tiresome, and different people like the sport for different ways. Scott, from like a, a fantasy standpoint, if you're somebody who's like a fantasy player, that's how you really engage the NFL. 
Hmm. It doesn't matter if there's really great teams or not great teams, is there? No, I mean, to me, the most interesting thing is to have a variety of different styles of teams. And yeah. that's something that we may have more of now than ever. So much of that has just been the turnover at quarterback where you have so many more athletes at the position. Uh, so you, it's not just the Panthers being weird. You have teams being weird in all kinds of interesting ways, like, you know, the Browns, uh, obviously yeah. the Ravens. Uh, it's almost like the, the defense is kind of embracing of trying to stop the passing attack has created all this diversity. And I, I just... I love it from that perspective, not even necessarily from a fantasy perspective, but give me a bad team that's weird any day over just a bunch of vanilla middling teams. I like that. And that's one of the reasons I think, you know, I react negatively to the Joe Flacco news because Mike White's different. I don't know what's going to happen. You had Josh Johnson out there. I don't know what's going to happen. Well, I know what's going to happen with Joe Flacco, but you're right. What's great. One of the things that's great about the NFL right now is that diversity of unusual teams that I don't know when I watch the Cardinals and Kyler Murray's out there, I don't know what kind of goofy play I'm going to see next. And then I don't know what the Chiefs are going to do next. And then there's a contrast. You know, watch the Patriots. I don't know what, you know, I, I think they're going to run the ball and throw screen passes, but like what's the Mac Jones story going to be after this? What's the Justin Fields story going to be after this? Now, the thing is we might perceive football more in a different way than a lot of fans out there because most fans are living and dying with their team. And that might be a different circumstance. So we're going to go over to a question in the chat from the Geek Robo, and I apologize, don't have this one prepped up. Will Adrian Peterson crack the top three of all times in rushers? He's currently fifth, and he needs 1,100 yards to beat Frank Gore for number three all time. Brian, you are shaking your head no. No, I don't. I don't think Peterson has 1,100 yards yards left in him. I'm a little surprised he's playing this year, to be perfectly honest. And I think if there weren't so many injuries, he would be happily retired at this point in time. It's so hard to get to get those last couple yards when you are, you know, Peterson is past the edge of his career. Peterson is now a, a must pick player in the loser league because he doesn't have he doesn't have he's not he's not Adrian Peterson anymore. He's just a guy who's getting like two two point five yards a carry. It's, it's a little bit sad to see some, him out there just because you you remember all those highlights of of him in his great years and he just doesn't have it anymore. And to me, it's like he doesn't really fit with teams other than the Titans either, because I like right. as kind of a slow accelerating power back, he really only makes sense out of like a traditional drop back passing attack, right? Like he's not going to take zone read handoffs from from some of these modern athletes at the position. He just it won't fit that way. And with the Titans, even Dante Foreman, it seems to be the one that's kind of taking more of the early down work anyway. So I'm not even sure he's going to get past like 500 yards this year. It right. would be really difficult for him to get up to like number three all time. In the past, he would complain about having to shotgun, offset, do inside zone, things like that. He did not like that. He likes eye formation or single setback, uh, you know, and, and be able to run downhill. So you're right. He doesn't really fit other places. And, yeah, you're right. Da Dante Freeman – Foreman, excuse me, not Dante Freeman. Mm -hmm. Dante Foreman got all the early game work or mostly early game work. Jeremy McNichols was coming in uh, for third downs. And then at the end of the game when they had a two-score lead, they put AP out there thinking he's going to be the battering rack against the Saints. And you know what? First two carries, he does fine. Third carry, uh, offensive line blows up because, you know, there's some middle linebacker streaking through the middle to stop him. Loss of five right there on the play. And then all of a sudden, Adrian Peterson's kind of out of the game plan again. So, I mean, I guess that's a t when, when people ask the question, well, Frank Gore, is he really a Hall of Famer? Was he really all that good? When was he ever the top this, top that? He's 1,100 yards ahead of Adrian Peterson. Adrian Peterson is incapable of catching – Frank Gore. So think about that when you start having your arguments about whether or not somebody's a Hall of Fame. Hey, Frank Gore was one of the most underrated players ever, too. Like the thing that gets lost just looking at stuff like yards per carry is how frequently he was running against eight man boxes. Like he was incredible at what he did. It just for whatever reason, it didn't stick with people. It wasn't flashy to people. But I, I think he was a tremendously great player. I was joking on Twitter when Peterson first signed that Frank Gore is the president who benefits the most in this news because that puts a year between them in the Hall of Fame voting. Because That's if Peterson Gore is above the ballot, you go Peter. Peterson was the better player. I think I'm fair yeah. saying that. But now that that's separate, that helps Gore's case quite a bit. You are absolutely right because what's going to happen is Gore is going to go in there. He's going to be a debate guy right. when they get together because there's going to be a backlog at other positions. They're going to have the conversation people have on Twitter. Was he really that great, et cetera? But when Adrian Peterson comes in, he's a first ballot. So they're going to say, well, if, at some point, they're going to say, if we're leapfrogging Peterson over Gore, we either have to put them both in, or we have to say next year you, you can't leave Frank Gore behind when you just put in a guy with less yardage. So that's like the politics of the Hall of Fame. That's going to help Frank Gore yeah, get in. Because if they went on the same ballot, you're right. 
Peterson could get in and Gore could be like, eh, now I have to wait X number of years because, you know, head to head, people are going to prefer Adrian Peterson. Um, in the chat, Jay Molnar, 94, asks, and, and we talk about this almost every week, and I don't know if we have anything here. Do you guys have any theories for why home field advantage seems to have disappeared? Okay. I mean, I, I have a theory, I guess, but I haven't investigated this at all. So this will be a perfect fit for a football outsider show. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, can we say COVID? Like the, the, Nate, the, the character of the fans at games has dramatically changed in recent seasons, mm. both in the time period when there weren't fans. And I guess now you could call it the like ticket resale era, so to speak. So it's like less play, less of the fans are specifically rooting for, for your home team. And so I feel like maybe there's a crowd noise component or like, you know, the things that make playing on the road difficult and the ability to like communicate with your headsets, um, get advantages with silent counts and stuff. I, I think that's kind of what's maybe going away, but I have absolutely no way to back that up and with, with hard data. That's interesting. I do like that, though, because, yeah, the people in the stands are a different group of people now than they might have been two years ago. That's kind of how you're saying. And then one year there were no people in the stands. Yeah. I mean, that that theory also relies on the fact that 2019 before COVID struck was just like a quirky year because it's been like a three year situation yeah. where the home field advantage has been lesser. Right. So I'm saying that year was an outlier that was going to regress. But then the nature of the, of the sport changed. Right. I'm sticking with my Tinder theory. In my Tinder theory, in the old days, there was no Tinder. Guy wanted to have a, a little romance on the road. They had to go to the club. They, to, they, they wouldn't get a good night's sleep before. Now, you want a little romance on the road, click, 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 click. Girl shows up at the hotel or the, the significant other shows up at the hotel. You do whatever. You can still get a good night's sleep and be ready for the game the next day. People laugh at this, but ESPN the, uh, did an article about this in 2017 in the NBA, and they think it was the Tinderfication of the NBA that was making home field advantage disappear, home court advantage disappear in the NBA because dudes were getting better sleep on the road because they could do some wild and crazy fun stuff and then still be in bed at a decent hour. I like it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I don't really take it seriously, but it's worth talking about. Um, and I want to get to some of the questions we got before, but Hitchhiker's Pie asked another question uh, about the Hall of Fame. Are there any running backs who are currently going to make it as the game trends more and more towards being pass heavy. Derek Henry, Alvin Kamara, and C-Mac seem to be the only ones even on track for it. Off the top of my head, I think Ezekiel Elliott, eh, but I don't necessarily see that. Um, this, are we this, going this, to have a long wall before we see another Hall of Fame running back? It's going to be an interesting shift as you start getting these, with more and more uh, backfields being timeshares now. Mm -hmm. It's going to be an interesting shift where voters are trying to get their minds off of what you need to be, uh, you know, get 1,200, 1,300 yards a year to get into. Right. Okay, well, what's your overall contribution to a team? You right. have a, you have a couple of years, we're going to have someone like Frank Gore who got to number three because he was get, got carries year after year after year versus right. someone who's got, who got maybe 40, 50% of the carries and did very good at that. It's going to be very interesting to see how the voters kind of, mentally get their heads around it yeah the same thing kind of in the 70s but all of a sudden passing like receiving numbers started going up that's how a uh, swan stallworth got in the hall of fame like oh because these great numbers they have and stuff like that especially stallworth, yeah yeah because they hadn't really uh grappled with the new reality of what the wide receiver position was becoming you know i'm not enough of a hall of fame expert to know but like as people like aaron Schatz and hopefully you mike end up with hall of fame votes mm -hmm. in the future like how is it going to change things having analytical people that don't think running backs are particularly valuable. And I'm talking even about your Derrick Henry's of the world, guys that, that put up a ton of statistics. If the thought is, you know, that's not really moving the needle a ton on how, how, how well these teams are actually winning games. Right. Like is Henry going to be just because he's like piling up the stats, is he going to be a hall of famer? If we're like, eh, you know, the Titans wouldn't have been that much worse off if they had just drafted a few fourth rounders and split time at running back. You know, like that's the thing that I don't really understand. And I don't know how the hall of fame voting would treat that. And that is terra incognita for all of us. I think, I mean, I've talked to enough voters, you know, they, they look at the analytics side of things. And we haven't quite broached that era yet where it's the era of analytics and we have these running backs. Because, again, most of the candidates are kind of iffy. And you have guys like Edger and James who had a big contribution to passing game. It was part of, like, championship caliber teams. So I, I don't know how it will go moving forward. I know Derrick Henry looked like he was on that route. But at this point, if this is what I think a lot of us think for Derrick Henry from this point on, it's the, the Todd Gurley phase or whatever you want to call it, where from this point on, he's not that guy. He, he's not a Hall of Famer. And he wouldn't have been a Hall of Famer even 25 years ago based on that. So there's a lot of factors. One is 
those of us in analytics saying, well, well, we wouldn't vote for that guy or we wouldn't, we wouldn't put him on our five and we have to pick these guys. But it's also just the game is changing in part because of analytics. These guys aren't getting these long opportunities to drag out their career to the point where it's like, well, this guy's obviously a Hall of Famer because he's at 12,000 rushing yards or whatever. Like, honestly, I think it would be a lot easier if it was just the Hall of Excellence and then you wouldn't have to spend so much time thinking about like 20 years ago, maybe wide receivers weren't as important. Now running backs maybe aren't as important. Like, who cares? Like, Derrick right. Henry was awesome and fun and put up a ton of stats. Like, that right. should probably be good enough. It's it's just we get lost in the semantics of all of this. A little bit because some people will be like, it's fame and he was famous. Most voters aren't thinking that. Obviously, we're not saying, well, he's a guard, and therefore, as a guard, he wasn't famous, so he doesn't get in. They try to go for that excellence thing, but then the politics come in because there's such a logjam. And when there's like uh, nine wide receivers from one era, and they're all vying, and then you have yeah. to start asking that question. If nine of them are excellent, then is our definition of excellence wrong? And that became a question years ago when Art Monk and, and, and Andre Reed and Chris Carter – uh, and a couple other guys were all going in at the same time. And they had to have a real debate on the floor where it's like, is it just that the passing stats went up and all these guys broke records that were held by John Stallworth and hmm. guys like that in the past? Did they all just break records at once and are a couple of these guys ordinary? And that led to a fight that led for years on the floor. So I don't think we're going to get that in running backs. Because I think in running backs, there's just going to be, well, one dude bubbled up out of like the eight years of running backs. Are, are they good or are they not good? And and that, I think that's how it's going to be. So we have a bunch of questions that came to us from uh, from Twitter uh, before the show. I'm going to hit a couple of them right now. A couple of coaching questions. And I'm going to start with Ian Larkin. And Ian Larkin asks, who are the best and worst coaches under the age of 45? I I think I have my list, but I'm going to start. Let's go with Scott. Do you have a, you have picks here? I do. Uh, again, this is another one where I have basically zero basis for what I'm saying here, other than just intuition or just being around the sport a little bit. But let me read you off all the, the coaches that I found that were under 45 in the order from, I think, best to worst, okay? Awesome. Sean McVay, Kevin Stefanski, Kyle Shanahan, Matt LaFleur, Brandon Staley, Arthur Smith, Kellen Moore, Zach Taylor, Joe Brady, Brian Flores, Cliff Kingsbury, Robert Sala, Dan Campbell, my guy, Byron Leftwich, Nick Sirianni, Joe Judge, and Matt Nagy. That's my list. That uh, is comprehensive as hell. I love it. Brian Dable, Mike Vrabel, and Josh McDaniels are all too old. They're 45 or 46. Um, I don't have really any way to support. That's why I think that those are the guys that are the guys. Because so much of it is like uncoupling what a coach is contributing versus his personnel it's very, very difficult. Frankly, like attributing blame and, and, and success to individual coaches when it's a real concert of events, like it's really hard to do, but that's my perception of things. You want to pick that apart? No, well, I want to say, first of all, you got a couple of the key coordinators in there. I threw in the ones that I thought were going to maybe be head coaches next year. Kellen Moore in particular, uh, you know, it, it may be kind of over for Joe Brady. I don't know, but I still think he's probably doing a good job. Right. Uh, Byron Leftwich. I threw a few of them over who I think are some of the, the worst head coaches like your Joe judges and uh, Matt Nagy's of the world. And you put Nagy at the bottom and you put McVay at the top. Correct. Awesome. Brian, do you have a 25 guy list or what do we got? <laughs> no, not, not quite. Uh, I think I'd put judge just below Nagy. If we're talking about uh, the, the very bottom list, although those, I think those are fairly clearly the bottom two for me as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, I think Nagy has shown occasional signs of something like I mean, the bears have made the playoffs a couple of times while Nagy's been there. He got something out of Trubisky. I have not, I've yet to see something that Joe judge does well. So <laughs> I think I'd put judge at the bottom uh, compared to Nagy. Uh, for the best. too high. Yeah. He's dead yeah. last, but too high. <laughs> you know what? I, I understand the argument and all I can say is you won't have to deal with them for too much longer. I would, and who'd you put number one, Brian? Um, I think I would agree with McVeigh in general, but it's tough. I mean, you got Matt Lafleur has mm -hmm. done some done some very good things. Uh, Kevin Stefanski, but there are a lot of very good players, very good coaches you could put at the top there. I think I would go with McVeigh, just especially now that we're seeing what Jared Goff has done elsewhere, so it yeah. makes him look even more like a miracle worker. 
but it's yeah. tough. You could go from there's a number of directions you can go there at the top. It actually it hurts Lafleur weirdly that his team's so good because like the most impressive thing you can do is what Sean McVay did with Goff and Stefanski does with Baker Mayfield, which is have success when your team is has like clear holes with it, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Now, I mean, I would put McVay at the top with you guys. I don't think that's very controversial. And part of it is just yeah. Being the guy who's there and you can engineer the shifting of gears and say, we're going to move on from Goff. Stafford's going to come here. Stafford's going to come play for me. And we're going to change things for him. And there was a, a degree of success. They're obviously having a cramp right now, but there was a degree of success. I think all those things are what, and, and a Super Bowl, helped me go over Kyle Shanahan and on. Uh, you know, I wanted to get involved in the Nagy versus Judge debate because it's tricky. Because I, I saw Nagy have some success. They, they went to the playoffs that one year. All I've seen Judge do is fail to use a headset properly. And, uh, you know, yell at the media. But it didn't say active coach. It just said best and worst coach. Adam Gase is 43 years of age, ladies and gentlemen. Adam Gase Mm -hmm. is 43 years of age. The worst football coach on earth. High school. Pop Warner. College. XFL. uh, Ted Lasso stuff in Europe. Whatever. Adam Gase is 43 years old. Worst coach under 45. Any any arguments? Yeah, Adam Gase has been on the rise in my perception since Sam Darnold has fallen apart and for the Panthers over the last six or so weeks. Like he was at an all-time low in about week three and a half this season, but kind of on the rebound. <laughs> no, that's because that's because Gase broke him. Gase just broke him. He took him out of the box and smashed all these action figures together. Um, Bill Houston, in an effort to get us in trouble on the chat, not saying all of these fans are trolls, but. Who- who have you found to be the three, you three found to be the most obnoxious NFL fan base to interact with? And while I give you guys time to think, it varies from week to week, from storyline to storyline. Uh, it is it, it it's difficult to say. I would say, you know, no one comes after you when you criticize anything like the Patriots fans. Yeah. Okay. And and I and I preface that with saying it's 20 years of excellence and a national fan base and a segment of that fan base that is on Twitter seemingly all the time. They can be incredibly, incredibly challenging to deal with. But there is one of the things is there are millions and millions and millions of that. Um, there are some interesting ones for me. Obviously, the Bills Mafia goes nuts from time to time. Um, and long before the Josh Allen thing, they would kind of come after you saying, how dare you criticize Nathan Peterman and things like that. Um Titans fan Kevin Green, I I don't oh I don't remember actually having an argument with the Titans fans <laughs> about anything. Um, but let, let me get you guys' opinion. Have you ever had a, 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 a fan base that you had that you found obnoxious? And again, we're not painting all fans like this. This is like the, that, that Twitter troll group of the fans. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, d- d- my make sure that most fans are most fans I've interacted with have been lovely. Uh, yeah. I did write the Packers chapter uh, the year after they went thirteen and three, and but all the all the, all the uh, metrics said that oh they were lucky to go that well, and the, that's the chapter. But like oh you know the, the the underlying metrics aren't as strong, and the, people disagreed with that. People disagreed with that loudly. <laughs> I also wrote the Bills chapter this year, uh, but, but you know, we started with a well uh, this is awkward us talking about how good Josh Allen is after we mocked him for two, two seasons. Yeah. Hi, that, that, that got me a little bit of a bit of a, oh yeah, now you like him. Now that he's doing good things, all of a sudden you think he's good. How dare you? <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's always just, it's, it's whoever is, wants to be loudest that week. Most, most fans are lovely, but yeah. I mean, if you ever write anything that's even slightly uh, controversial or negative, you will find somebody out there who doesn't agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I think we're pretty lucky to be in the, the football outsiders bubble where like most of the, the stereotypical fans aren't really following along or commenting for us. Right. So, I mean, I would agree with you that say the Packers and Bills fans are the most interactive. Like you see the most comments for people talking about those teams, but by and large, I don't really see a lot of backlash to things that we say that might be controversial if we said it on like, you know, first take. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. like people, I think can understand where it is that we're coming from if they're reading on football outsiders. So, you know, no complaints. I'm a happy camper. I, mean, right. I do scramble and lose a league. When I talk about how bad the jets are, the jets fans agree with me. So that's, you know, like, that's the <laughs> yeah, jets fans tend to be fatalists and they kind of like wallow in the misery with you. And again, I, I, I did bleach report and everything. So I kind of got like that wider cross section. Cause you're right. Football outsiders, commenters and things like that. Like, oh yeah, we're talking about the stats and things like that. Packers fans. I mean, there are a lot of them and 
you know, for years when you would be like, you know, I think Aaron Rodgers is kind of a jerk. While as great as he is, he's a jerk. Like that would always get the, oh, here comes the narrative. Here comes the narrative of this guy. You see a little less of that in the last couple of weeks. I think they realize, yeah, yeah, the, he's a little bit odd. Uh, Rick Desper asks about the Cowboys fans. I think most Cowboys fans, when I've ripped the Cowboys, have looked at my, uh, uh, my, 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 you know, my background or, you know, looked at my thing and said, oh, Eagles fan, whatever. So that's, the, you know, they, they blow me off or they block me or mute me. Uh, I'm going to finish this with one thing. Dolphins fans. And again, people keep saying Titans fans. I, I, Titans fans, I, I've never, I've never met one. I, I have met one, but like uh, Dolphins fans always want to explain to you how a great team is constructed. They, you're good. You don't understand how a great team is constructed. I like Dolphins fans. When did you see a great team constructed? When? 1972. Yeah. You know. So so what the so so it's kind of like you don't understand what, what great glorious thing we're building. And, 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 and I was like, guys, that's great. You, all you did was look at the Patriots and you're guessing what the Patriots did. So I'm sorry I keep ripping your franchise, but your franchise keeps doing dumb things like right now when they are just purposely shaming their potential franchise quarterback. Um, <laughs> Jason Mendoza is not pretty obnoxious. Jason Mendoza, famous Jaguars fan, famous Blake Bortles fan uh, from the show The Good Place is an absolute national treasure. And Todd Singer, you should be ashamed of yourself. For suggesting such a thing, I would do a sh I would do a Bortles shout right now, but I don't want to worry the folks at Edge Sports. Um, let's do another question from the chat. I want to get to uh, this one since we were talking coaches and we were talking. Actually, no, I'm going to do one before this one. Give me one second. Uh, Nathan Wingo, admitting that this was a zany question, asked which coach would have the best forty time, and which coach would win in the octagon. Now, I'm going to throw this out, but I don't want to say, in general, in my opinion, coaches, when they do a lot of cardio, don't do a lot of sprint cardio. I got to tell you, all these fit-looking coaches, and a lot of fit-looking coaches in the NFL, they're on the, the stationary bike, they're on the Stairmaster machine, but they're doing sort of the hill training and things like that. They are not doing sprints. So I want to get your, your thoughts on the 40 time and on the octagon, guys. Let's start with the 40 time. With the well, practicing all those, all those, so Joe Judge has his team running laps all the time. That's got to help, right? <laughs> he ain't running them himself, though. My, my gym teacher in high school had us running laps. And I think he would have like needed a cigarette after like fifty feet if he tried to run one himself. So, Scott, you have pick for best forty time. I do. Like, if you let me cheat, I'll go Antoine Randall L. He's the wide receiver coach for the Lions. Ran a four five four forty time, and he's still forty two <laughs> years old. So, like, yeah. that's my my real answer. Uh -huh. um, but if you let me get a little zanier, I think it's Pete Carroll. Like, I know he's sixty nine years old, mm -hmm. but like, there's a man with way more energy than I have as a thirty five year old. It's like that guy's running up and down the sidelines. I feel like he definitely wakes up at four a.m. and runs before he goes into work. Right? I think it's Carroll. Yes. If, it, if we're doing age adjusted 40, especially, it's definitely. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Brian, start that stat. Oh, my God. Why did we not have that? Trademark that before the show posts. It, age adjusting for 40 times, like Willie Galt is is actually a superhuman, I think, if you do that. But uh, who's your pick, Brian? I don't have a great pick for the for the 40 time, I'll say. I might go with uh, Lafleur just because he seems a bit young and feisty, but I don't. I've I've spent a lot more time thinking about the octagon than I've been thinking about okay. the forty time. Yeah, we let's start talking about Dan Campbell. That's that's what we want to do. Okay, let's go. Let's move to the my way, Sean McVeigh, who I believe played receiver in college. Yeah, was my pick among the the head coaches. I hadn't thought of Randall L. Stump Mitchell. He's a little older, but that's Sean, Sean McVeigh puts too much hell jar in his hair, hair to make me think that he can run fast. Oh no, no, just flicks it down. It makes it smooth. No wind resistance. <laughs> right, right. It's almost well, by that logic, I would be incredibly fast. And let me yes. assure you that I'm not. <laughs> you may be the fastest guy in this podcast, right? Uh, now. I, I assure you I am not. <laughs> Dude, you've seen me walk. No, she, when I used to play little league baseball, my dad said it looked like I had a parachute holding me back when I ran. And yeah, it's it definitely hasn't gotten worse over the last 20 years. I don't think the football outside his combine is going to get very, very many views. Act Actually, let's do that next offseason, too. I feel like that would be our most popular stream. By far. By far. And But I don't know if the insurance, health insurance, uh, for Football Outsiders, Edge Sports, whatever. <laughs> Your dad said that. Your dad said that. He called me the Roadrunner. Oh, absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. Let's get to let's get, be, <laughs> let's get to the octagon. I think we're all about to say the same guys. But uh, I'll start with you, Scott. Uh, who do you like in the octagon? Well, I mean, Dan Campbell, low-hanging fruit. He's biting kneecaps, right? Like, if unless there are rules like boxing style where you can't do certain things, I think Dan Campbell is definitely the answer. Thought of Mike Vrabel and Todd Bowles. 
weirdly, I'm going to go Ron Rivera. I know that he's pushing 60, but like the man has a presence. Like he's one of the few coaches that I've actually been in a room with, been in an elevator with, and like it's intimidating. You're right. You're right. Brian? I was going to go Vrabel versus Campbell is, is, is your championship match there. You got both still fairly on good shape, both former, former NFL players. I like them a lot as, as the two champions. Robert Sella is someone who might, uh, mm. might, might be able to get That's in a good one too. Right. Yeah, I would lean towards Vrabel, and then Campbell would be like the, that. Would be the the, yeah. the final match. I like Scott though, because yeah, I, I've been close to Rivera, and it's like, you know, like sort of a Liam Neeson kind of feel, <laughs> like the old old guy strength kind of feel, like 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 he's just going to break you with his stare, and then he's going to hurt you. So so I can definitely see that. I'll say props to Dan Campbell. Like everyone I thought of as a defensive minded, either coordinator or head coach that was a defensive coordinator, except Campbell coming up as a former tight end. Like I'm impressed that he's in the mix. Yeah. But a blocking tight end. He got, he got in there. He, he, he mm. messed up a little bit there. True. Right. And in the chat, uh, M. Noskow one says, Mike, how could you miss former division three standout receiver, Nick Sirianni, which is a good point. I keep forgetting Nick Sirianni really is a head coach that he's not like one of the special assistants for the Eagles who goes out and checks the microphones before the press conference. And then that gives a dummy press conference. I keep forgetting he is actually in charge because he is so young and young acting, I guess, so to speak, but you're right. Not for the octagon. He would get destroyed. He would, he would melt in the octagon if Rivera showed up, but in the 40, I think he could do it. Fucking last place in the octagon. I think I'm going with David Cully because he's, he's, you know, he's the easier assistant vice principal kind of guy. He's nice. Someone yeah. I can imagine throwing a lot of punches in there. Yeah, and you know what? All the frustration of having to coach the Texans and I hear the stupid crap that he probably has to hear in the back and then go out and mumble nonsense. Like, he takes out all this frustration in the octagon on some coach who actually has authority and has empowerment. <laughs> I love it. And that, and that takes us to uh, another question. Since we knew I knew we were going to talk about Vrabel during the octagon, Swimming Tortoro, uh, formerly Buff Tortoro, uh, a, a friend of the uh, a podcast asked, Mike Vrabel does not meet the criteria for the Hall of Fame based purely on his playing career, but he makes an interesting hybrid candidate. What do you think he would have to do as a head coach to merit consideration when taken in combination with his playing career? So how does, I guess, Mike, Mike Vrabel, how does he get into the Hall of Fame? Uh, he, he could buy a ticket. Um <laughs> But Rabel is, is uh, as a player, he's kind of Hall of very, very good kind of guy. He's the guy you know that uh, that that the the, uh, the the Patriots are going to you know bring back every now and then. They're going to put his name in the Ring of Honor. They're going to go, "This guy was fun. We loved him." I don't see. I don't think he has much of a case, particularly at all as a player. So as a head coach, you're not talking about winning at least one and maybe more Super Bowls. Mm -hmm. They're explicitly not supposed to take these people as, as, as hybrid candidates. So that, that, that's the rule. They're supposed to look at them only as a player, only as a coach. They're human. Things happen. I know. Um, oh, I just forgot the uh, longtime coordinator for the Steelers, Dick LeBeau. Yeah, I mean, he kind of yeah. got in a little bit because of, of what he did both as a coordinator and as a uh, as a defensive back for many years. Right. But I I just really don't see. I I would be very surprised if Rabel gets in the hall at any point. I tend to agree, and I think LeBeau is the only example I have of somebody who looks like they were a half-and-half half candidate. So, yeah, for me, Vrabel has to win the Super Bowl, has to be a great coach because they're not going to go back. And if you look back at some of the careers of some of the great coaches, if you look at Tom Landry's playing career, it's pretty sub sub substantial. Yeah. But there's no way that he's in because of some hybrid along the way. So, so yeah, I, I would think that Vrabel, he's got to be a Super Bowl-caliber Head coach be able to make the Hall of Fame. Maybe it ends up being kind of a tiebreaker. Like if like if he's what part of like the seniors committee or the coaches committee, and there's like two or three guys trying to figure out who puts over. Maybe Vrabel's playing career can then get him over someone with right. an equivalent resume. But right. I don't think it's going to be enough in and of itself to do anything. Right. I tend to yeah. agree. A question came over the uh, chat just now from Bill Houston. Given the Cardinal success, has your opinion changed regarding Cliff Kingsbury? I'll start by saying practically 180 degrees. I thought that he was on his way to Chip Kelly land around this time last year when their offense got really stale. And now I think he's in the mix as one of the quality coaches in the NFL. Yeah, that's what, to me, that, that's the biggest thing you can ask any coaches. Can you make changes when things are going wrong? And things were going wrong for Kingsbury. And we've seen so many coaches like, no, this is my system. I'm going to write it all the way to the yes. unemployment line when, every, when everything fails in three years. The fact that Kingsbury could add to his offense and add more routes and change things up, it really does improve my uh, opinion of him. 
I mean, I feel like hasn't the Cardinals improvements been more centered on their defensive improvement than offensive yeah. improvements? Like how much is Kingsbury the one that's responsible for the success the team's had? Like these are the kind of the similar thoughts that I had with Bruce Arians with the Bucks, where it's like there's been a bit of a 180 of perception of him because the, mm -hmm. the Bucks were so great last year and won the Super Bowl. But is he the reason why? Like, honestly, they kind of give me similar vibes of not necessarily be the, being the hardest working coaches in, in business. Right. <laughs> and so I, I wonder if he's, he deserves all the credit here for the turnaround. Yeah, who is the who is the least hardworking coach in the NFL right now that uh, Doug is gone? I guess it's Urban, but like that, that's probably not something we should go get into. But and I'll say this, Scott, it's like if you say, well, Bruce Arians is creating the system under which the defense is thriving. He's hiring the coordinators, et cetera. There's something to be said for that. I don't know if you can say that about Cliff Kingsbury because those well, decisions come down from on high. Well, I mean, I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth. I've kind of always contended that we see a lot less of what makes a coach successful from the outside. So we're like, we're always judging coaches by, you know, their decision-making on fourth downs, their yeah. play calling tendencies and stuff. When so much of the work that goes into winning games happens earlier in the week in practices and meeting rooms that it's, right. it's honestly so hard to judge, judge these guys that it, you know, I'm not going to take a half a season worth of Kingsbury having a little bit more success as, as evidence either way, honestly. Absolutely. Although in the same time, I, it, I thought it was going downhill. It was going uphill. At some point, you do make like you don't like make a final judgment, but from a perception standpoint, it's like at least I don't think right now it is going completely downhill the way I thought it was last year. So, um, question from the Twitter. Let me find it. Here we go from Alex Dickel, and this is a little outside of my wheelhouse, but maybe we have thoughts on this. Who's the current NFL coach most likely to fill one of the many high-profile coaching jobs during this offseason? USC, LSU, Florida, maybe Penn State, maybe Texas. I guess that's almost a question along the lines of where's Urban Meyer going to go. But but do we have a thought on, on which coach might wind up in the college ranks next year? I definitely have a front runner in my mind. That's okay. Joe Brady back to LSU. Like, if I were him, I would pull the Shaka Smart from college basketball where it's like, you can't fire me because I just took another job before you fired me. It's like, <laughs> Brady's over here, like scheming up, making some really good things happen with bad players. And Matt Rule is like five games in being like, you're trash, bud. He's like, actually, no, Sam Darnold is the one that's actually trash. I'm doing a pretty good job here. I don't need to have Matt Rule yelling at me 24-7. I'm going to go coach at LSU. To me, it's a no-brainer. I love it. I love it. Yeah, as far as head coaches, that, that's a great one, if you, especially if you exclude Meyer. Uh, if you're talking about NFL coaches in general, I like uh, Eric Bieniemy to USC. Uh, you know, he, he hasn't been able to get a, get a bite of a head coaching job in the NFL. He grew up in Southern California. I mean, if they're, if I could see him being tempted to go that way, if, especially if he doesn't get any more interviews this year. Right. Is the reason the enemy hasn't gotten jobs because the, they keep going to the Super Bowl, So he like is too late available for interviews or is there something else going on? There's something else going on. I, I have long stopped trying to psychoanalyze uh, uh, the owners, especially of, of dysfunctional franchises when they're trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah, owners of dysfunctional franchises, implicit bias. You know, at 158 is probably not the time to, to steer into this ditch. But, yeah, it's not just, a, oh, well, it's the Super Bowl thing. Uh, you know, the teams would make the opportunity for Eric Bieniemy, and they have interviewed him, and they've chosen others. Um, Jay Molnar, 94, on the uh, – on the thread asks, what's the best metric for judging coaches against the spread record? Oh, that's a kettle of fish. You don't want to do the against the spread record. Um, Co coaching opinions are baked into the spread. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, against and, entropy is my favorite thing because teams, you know, they regress towards 500, all things being equal. So right. if you can keep your team up to 10, 11 wins year after year after year, that shows that you're a good coach. That shows you're doing preparation right. You're doing scouting right. You're doing all that stuff right. So record against entropy is kind of my favorite long-term method to, to judge a coach. To me, like in a salary cap league, it's it's basically impossible. Because even if you're looking at consistently good records, to me, you're looking at personnel more than you're looking at coaching. So like my best judgment would be seeing cool looking plays on the field, which I know is kind of a lame response. But to yeah. me, that's that's the only real evidence you have as an outsider to who's doing a good job. Right. I mean, what happens is inevitably there's success. And you're right. A lot of times that's personnel, et cetera. You have to have something that's measurable for a coach. And I like the way you said it, Brian. It's like it's against entropy because it's like you're getting dragged down. So the coach who has the 11 and 5 year, maybe that's Kingsbury this year. Do they get dragged down by the entropy of the league relatively quickly? Chip Kelly did. Like we can name guys who did. Or is there some evidence like obviously Bill Belichick, like Harbaugh, like, like Tomlin, that you can rise 
above that level of entropy and consistently being like, oh, you know what? We had to change quarterbacks. We had to, we lost seven guys to free agency and we're still 11 and five. We still got to the wild card. We still competed for the division. That's the measure of, of a, of, of a good coach or a great coach. And, and then for the, the weaker coaches, you know, it when you see it and, and for like a first year coach, second year coach, you've got nothing except when you can see like the sharks swimming around these guys, that doesn't come from nothing. You know, when you hear about the hot seat and a lot of people, when they hear, oh, like things emanating out, like, oh, he doesn't know how to use the headset or he got into a fight with the offensive coordinator or, you know, he was having dinner at six o'clock at night, uh, the, the night after a game or whatever, et cetera. The Sharks are circling for a reason. And usually it means the program health is not phenomenal underneath of this particular coach. Um, let's see if we can get to one more question if I have it. I have this one because the last one from Nathan Wingo, and we're going to wrap with this one. He said it was Mike Tenier specific. It is not nothing is specific to me in this world, folks. If you swap Sam Bradford and Matthew Stafford, kept all the personnel the same, who wins between Jeff Fisher's Rams and Sean McVay's Rams? So let me tee that up again. It is Jeff Fisher's Rams, but with Matt Stafford at quarterback, but Sean McVay's Rams versus with Sam Bradford at quarterback, and you can pick any Sam Bradford you want from the world of Sam Bradford's. Well, if we're looking for uh, uh, Bradford and Fisher together, the only year that Jeff Fisher had a healthy Sam Bradford was 2012. There is no other overlap between them. I went back and checked this earlier today. We, we, it's only a decade ago we've already kind of me melded all those early 2010 St. Louis Rams together. But no, it's only 2012. Okay. Th those they had they had a, a decent defense. 2012 Rams. They had a Janoris Jenkins in his rookie year, a Chris Long, James Lonitis, some good players. But their receivers were Danny Amendola, Brandon Gibson, and Chris Givens. I mean, I, I don't think you need to be a superstar uh, uh, passer to get more out of what the Rams currently have. And Bradford in 2012 was okay. He was average. So I think McVay with Bradford would stomp all over uh, Fisher's 2012 Rams. This is definitely not my wheelhouse. I'll probably <laughs> yield more time to, to Brian as a, as a football historian. But I do know that Sam Bradford was like Alex Smithian in his low average depth of target. And to me, if you kind of fast forwarded him to the 2020, 2021 era, it would be really tough for him to play against modern defenses uh, that like know how to handle that sort of thing. Like, because they wouldn't have any of the modern tricks to deal with it, like jet right. sweeps and stuff. So I guess I would lean the other way. I think he didn't have those tricks because Jeff Fisher was his quarterback, uh, was his coach. I think that was part of it. Uh, in, in general, the Jeff Fisher Rams, even though they could have some good personnel, just always underachieved. And I'm I'm going to bet against – Jeff Fisher coach team, no matter who's there. Uh, you did mention Sam Bradford fast forward to 2021. Cam Newton gets hurt. Panthers are going after Sam Bradford. You know they are because he can't help but get more contracts and they can't help this to, but waste more money at quarterback position. So <laughs> bank on it. You're going to see Sam Bradford in 2021 the moment Cam gets hurt. I'm not rooting on Cam getting hurt, folks, but you, uh, you, know, you know what's happening. I will do one last question, then we're getting out of here, I swear, because Todd Singer asked, how much does a head coach record correlate with a quarterback record? And I'm assuming, Todd, you want an off-the-cuff answer. We didn't just do quickly research because we could look, look that up. But it tends to be rather high, especially when you have those combinations there. And that muddies the water, like as Scott's talking about, like you don't know whether it's personnel or not. It muddies the water when you're evaluating a Belichick or a, a, you know, a Walsh, et cetera. It does. And it, work, it works both directions, right? Because like, right. I think this is something we've learned a lot about with the Rams going from Stafford to, to Goff or whatever, where it's like the reason that Goff maybe had the record he had with McVay was McVay. And like, I, I think that probably happens more often than we would care to admit with some right. of the players we consider to be the better quarterbacks historically. Right. And I think I look for a coach across multiple quarterbacks, a coach who had to find his solutions at quarterback when there's, when there's enough longitude in their career. You know, and, and that's where he gets down to, unfortunately, like every situation's different because you look at Adam Gase. It's like, well, Tannehill could have been the quarterback and he wasn't. So we can put that against Gase. That's an easy example. What happens when you have to look at Lovey Smith? What happens when you look at Marv Lewis? People who had the eight, nine, ten years of, of head coaching experience. And you have to turn around and say, well, let's line item veto this quarterback or for two years they had this guy. It becomes a very, very tricky evaluation. All right. I think we are done here. I want to thank everybody for asking questions, for participating, for listening. Those of you listening later on, thank you for listening to us. Please 
rate us, review us on your favorite podcast thing of choice, YouTube. I don't know how you rate and review things stuff. I'm a middle-aged man. I don't understand this. Please do it because I know it helps us get engagement. Don't forget, Football Outsiders Plus, 99 cents, special offer, limited time only. Get access to all of our stats, FO picks, Scott's fantasy information, DFS information. There's a treasure trove of stuff there for matchups and things like that. You get all that for 99 cents a month for a limited time. Do all of that. Tomorrow, I'll be back. Aaron Schatz will be back. He'll be in the in the director's seat here. And I believe Tom Gower is our guest. We'll be going over the big games for this weekend, the Chiefs-Cowboys game and some of the other big ones happening along the way. So please come back then. Until then, Brian, thank you very much. Scott, thank you very much. And thank you all for listening and watching. We'll catch you next time.